welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Elvis Presley manager, Colonel Tom Parker. Now let's get started with our story about Elvis's manager, Colonel Tom Parker. On the morning of August 16, 1977, the man known as Colonel Tom Parker, famous as the manager of Elvis Presley, was in Portland, Maine, supervising the advance team that was preparing to kick off the latest Elvis Live concert tour. Although Presley had already performed 55 shows in 1977, these performances occurred typically in two-week bursts of activity, followed by extended downtime at Graceland, Elvis's Memphis home. Damaged by years of binge eating and narcotics abuse, which included extensive opiate consumption, the obese and exhausted 42-year-old performer frequently struggled both physically and musically to even complete this less-than-demanding schedule. His abbreviated and frequently mediocre concerts prompted Colonel Parker to book Presley into venues far from major media markets, explaining upcoming dates in towns like Utica, New York, Roanoke, Virginia, and Fayetteville, North Carolina. Elvis Presley's tenuous medical condition was underlined early on this August afternoon when Parker received a phone call in his room at the Dunphy Sheraton in Portland from Joe Esposito, a longtime Elvis employee and member of the Memphis Mafia, the famed entourage of gophers and security people who comprised Presley's inner circle. Esposito brusquely told him that he had terrible news and that Elvis Presley was dead. Another close associate of Presley, Lamar Fike, was in Portland, Maine also to help get ready for the tour. He was attempting to get some sleep after taking a red-eye from Los Angeles when there was a loud knock on his door, a voice telling him intently that the colonel needed to see him right away, despite Fike's protestations. Entering the colonel's hotel room, he noticed other employees avoiding his gaze as Parker hung up the phone. In an unemotional tone of voice, the colonel explained that Fike needed to go to Memphis and be with Vernon Presley, Elvis's father, and that Elvis was dead. Like many members of the entourage, and even Elvis himself, Fike's relationship with Parker at this point was at best ambivalent. In Fike's case, he frequently expressed concern over Elvis Presley's physical condition. Parker typically ignored such entreaties, maintaining whenever forcefully pressed on this concern, quote, that the only thing that mattered was getting that boy ready to appear on stage that night, unquote. Now Fike's anger boiled over. Well, it took you a while, but you finally ran him into the ground, didn't you? Parker started to get angry himself, but Fike at 300 pounds and a part of Elvis's security detail probably made the colonel think better of escalating the situation. Fike then left immediately and flew directly to Memphis, the rest of the Portland crew also eventually following. But Colonel Tom Parker headed to New York instead. There was work to do, and as he confided to at least one business associate, I can't waste time mourning. While in New York, he prodded RCA Records to greatly increase their Elvis record production, forecasting correctly that the singer's death would prompt an unprecedented demand. He began negotiations with poster and t-shirt producers, and within days finalized a deal to mass merchandise Presley's likeness to also capitalize on another frenzied revenue stream. Eventually, the colonel arrived in Memphis in time to attend the impromptu, celebrity-filled wake at Graceland. Typically dressed in a short-sleeved Hawaiian shirt and baseball cap, 
Parker avoided Presley's open casket and later refused to be a pallbearer at the funeral services. Instead, he spent his time cajoling the executor of the estate, Vernon Presley, into signing an agreement that reaffirmed the terms of the colonel's management deal that he formerly had during Elvis Presley's lifetime. To any press that he sparingly spoke with, the message was the same. It don't mean a damn thing. It's just like when he was away in the army. This changes nothing. To at least a few members of the inner circle, he was even blunter in a manner that, although utterly cold and mercenary, did not surprise those who knew him. Elvis isn't dead, just his body is gone. For several years, Parker was able to continue to maintain control over both the Elvis Presley estate and his own carefully constructed public image, that of a rascally carnival con man who eventually became the brains and skill behind one of the most remarkable careers in American entertainment history. It would take a while, but eventually the death of Elvis Presley set off a chain of events that brought down this utter facade with a resounding crash. The financial and professional mismanagement, the confiscatory fees that contradicted standard industry practices, the complete lack of any intervention to stop Elvis Presley's physical self-destruction, the gambling mania that rivaled Elvis's own dysfunctional behavior, and even the actual identity of Colonel Tom Parker himself eventually surfaced, only adding to the disturbing and tragic legacy of Elvis Presley, an American icon reduced to a pathetic shell of his former greatness. According to Colonel Tom Parker personally, he was born in early 1900 in Huntington, West Virginia, and began working and touring carnivals at a very young age. He served in the military, eventually developed and promoted his own carnival acts, and graduated to first promoting and then managing country musicians until obtaining the exclusive management contract of Elvis Presley in 1954. While he was always able to obscure his true beginnings, his singular accent was ascribed to his origins in rural Appalachia. In fact, although slight, his accent was Dutch because Colonel Tom Parker was not born anywhere near West Virginia. He was not even born in the United States. He was born Andreas von Koik on June 26, 1909, in Breda, the Netherlands, the seventh of 11 children of Maria and Adam von Koik. His father eked out a modest living as a delivery driver and horse trainer, the family typically lower middle class. From an early age, Andreas, nicknamed Dries, was fascinated by the touring carnivals that probably provided the most exciting stimulus in his mostly drab young life. By the age of nine, he already was working with the various itinerant entities that produced these ventures, typically trading labor for free admission and a few guilders. He quit or was thrown out of school in the fifth grade, initially working for his father and then bouncing through several jobs that included grocery delivery boy, luggage handler, and even working in a jam factory. At age 16, he made his way to the largest city in Breda's vicinity, Rotterdam, a port town that he felt would provide him with much more opportunity. He moved in with his Uncle Jan's family and worked odd jobs on ferries and delivery boats. Back in Breda, his father Adam passed away in January of 1926, leaving his wife Maria with the burden of raising Dree's six siblings, four other children having never made it past infancy. This proved to be too much, and Uncle Jan eventually became the official guardian of the minor von Koik children, Andreas included. But Dries did not remain in his uncle's household for long. Even at a young age, the 17-year-old dreamed of bigger and better things, and either as a crew member or more likely as a stowaway, he eventually came to the United States and wound up in Hoboken, New Jersey, literally on the couch of a sympathetic Dutch family who apparently got sweet-talked into taking him in. When the teenager refused to inform his family or uncle of his whereabouts, his hosts at least wrote to his mother and explained his current situation. But just as mysterious as his arrival and tenure in Hoboken, his departure was just as sudden, possibly because his mother had written of her intent to come to America and most likely extricate her son back to his family and homeland, a prospect Andreas von Koik wanted no part of. He did not run off and join the circus. Instead, he caught on with the organization known as Chautauqua, 
kind of highbrow traveling carnival that presented lectures, music, and presentations on all sorts of various subjects, wildly popular in the late 19th and early 20th century. By the 20s, this form of entertainment was petering out. But Andreas spent two summers with a Chautauqua touring company, drifting around the country in the winter, mostly in California, where he ate in missions and soup kitchens and avoided cold weather. At the end of his second summer, von Koik saved enough money to return to Breda, arriving on September 2, 1927, his mother's birthday. Well-dressed, with trinkets for the whole family, he made quite an impression, although he spoke little of how he actually spent the previous 18 months. But, especially after spending time in the U.S., Breda quickly got old, and Andreas soon made his way back to Rotterdam and work as a deckhand on a ship that traveled between that city and Breda. Instead of staying at his uncle's, he lived in a rooming house owned by the shipping company that employed him. He spent most of his time by himself, uninterested in either women or carousing in the many saloons and cafes frequented by his rowdy peer group. He kept in touch with his family, who certainly knew where he was and what he was doing, until one day in May of 1929. Andreas von Koik failed to show up for work, and it was eventually determined that he simply vanished without a word to either his employer or his family. Even more troubling was the arrival of the large, locked steamer trunk Dries kept at the rooming house, the shipping company returning it to his mother's house several weeks after his disappearance. Inside there were three finely tailored suits, a rosary, a Bible, cash, and his identification. Adding to this mysterious departure, the family did receive some strange letters that were signed with the name Andreas and someone named Tom Parker. The last of these letters were signed only with this odd pseudonym, with no explanation, and finally communication with any member of the von Koik family from this enigmatic relative ceased altogether. It would be many years before Andreas von Koik resurfaced in any identifiable form, and even then, he would have little interest in explaining his abrupt departure. In fact, he would refuse almost any attempt by the Van Koiks to reestablish family ties. What prompted this sudden departure? Why was the eventual Colonel Tom Parker so adamant about completely severing any ties to his actual nationality, identity, and even immediate family? Was there some incident or even crime related to Parker that he felt might jeopardize his livelihood and prominence in America and even his freedom? The answer to that question has never been answered definitively, but there was a great deal of circumstantial evidence indicating that Andreas von Koik had to flee on short notice because he was involved in a murder that occurred just a few steps from his family home in Breda. On May 17, 1929, Anna von den Enden, the wife of a shop owner was beaten to death in the apartment behind the produce store run by her husband, who was out making deliveries. Whoever the assailant was, they subsequently ransacked the living quarters, which police eventually concluded was the chief motive for the robbery, a search for cash. Initially, Anna's brother-in-law, observed near the shop around the time of the crime, was detained by police, but he was eventually released. Despite a lengthy written report in police archives, the investigation was not particularly thorough. No murder weapon was determined or located, only subsequent descriptions from more than one eyewitness stating that they saw a well-dressed man leaving the shop around the time of the murder. The best nugget of information came from a delivery man who stated that he saw a person dressed in a yellow raincoat leaving the shop on May 17th and that he also encountered this individual in the same neighborhood, arguing with an older woman who fit the police report description of Andreas's mother. The produce shop was located at 31 New Boschstraat. Maria von Koik lived on Boschstraat, certainly in the vicinity of the shop in question. Andreas von Koik was never officially suspected or even questioned in this murder, which remains unsolved. But there are several coincidences which make him at least a person of interest in the crime. He knew both the victim and her husband, the former who attended the same nearby church that he and his family frequented, 
and the latter the son of a cafe owner, Johannes von den Enden. This cafe was around the corner from the stable where Adam von Koik, Andreas's father, worked. And the elder von Koik, while alive, spent a great deal of time at this establishment. Andreas also would have purchased goods from this store, would have been aware of who the proprietor was, and possibly even the delivery schedule of William von den Enden, the husband of the murder victim. A newly married couple, Anna's presence might have surprised a would-be intruder, unaware of the six-week-old marriage, intent merely on burglary, but then compelled to murder a victim who could identify him. Pepper was also spread around the body and throughout the apartment, a deliberate attempt to throw off dogs who were frequently used during this time period to track the scent of a criminal. It is also most likely that Andreas von Koik was in Breda on this Friday, the weekend of Whit Sunday, an important family and religious holiday, like Easter, most families celebrated together. A sharp dresser, Andreas's favorite color, was bright yellow. Most disconcerting is the coincidence of the date of this murder and Andreas von Koik's sudden disappearance from the Netherlands without a word to anyone in his family. Many years later, any surviving family members maintained that their Andreas never could have committed such a crime, but at least one prominent Presley insider, familiar with the colonel's adult personality, revealed a much more startling perspective about both Tom Parker's temperament and his capacity for murder. In 2001, Lamar Fike stated in an interview, There's no doubt that he killed that woman. He had a terrible temper. He and I got into some violent, violent fights. We fought all the time. When we started arguing, people would get up and leave the table. As we shall see, the subsequent behavior of the man who became Colonel Tom Parker indicates that he was not merely an individual with a dodgy immigration status, a situation that his eventual military service and certainly subsequent fame and prestige could have easily remedied, but a man absolutely intent on preventing any examination of his past in the Netherlands. With that in mind, how Andreas von Koik entered the United States in 1929 also has never been determined. The only information about this topic were anecdotes told by the colonel himself, usually having him jumping off various ships, first in the British Isles after leaving the Netherlands, then in Curaçao where he left a Dutch freighter, and possibly either via a rum runner or fishing boat, entering the U.S. via Mobile, Alabama. No formal manifest in Mobile around that time lists an Andreas von Koik or a Thomas Parker, so if he did enter through this port, it was by some unofficial means. Chautauqua was no longer an employment option, literally on its last legs, so Parker picked another vocation, probably one he was more suited to anyway. He went to work for one of the many carnival companies that crisscrossed the U.S. during the summer months. These touring outfits transported by a lengthy chain of railroad cars that allowed deployment in just about any town with a fairground or other common public area. Nobody cared about someone's immigration status or personal details. Most traveling carnies were on the run from something or someone anyway. The perfect environment for a fringe character like Von Koik. He first officially reappeared in Huntington, West Virginia, employed by Reuben and Cherry Exposition Shows, one of the more prominent carnival outfits of the day. But, according to his own version, that became testimony in one of the many lawsuits that dogged his final years. Parker didn't last long in this environment. He claimed to have enlisted in the U.S. Army, completing his basic training at Fort McPherson, Atlanta, Georgia. A completely unsubstantiated version of how he became Thomas Parker has him expropriating the name from an officer who handled the details of his enlistment. But at any rate, officially, at least in the Army, Andreas von Koik was now Thomas Parker. Given the option of various geographic locations to serve out his enlistment, the newly minted Parker chose Hawaii. His enlistment also served another potentially valuable asset against any future legal issues in the event the Dutch government decided it wished to extradite him back to the Netherlands. 
a condition of any foreign national enlisting in the U.S. military during this time period was that said national renounce their own citizenship and declare their intent to become a U.S. citizen. But von Koik Parker never pursued U.S. citizenship, which required additional steps he never completed, in essence making him a stateless individual, something he fully acknowledged himself in a legal brief filed on his behalf when he was sued by RCA Records in 1982. What could have possibly prompted Parker to actually enlist in the military, the type of organization that was utterly contrary to his impulsive and undisciplined personality? Obviously, the ability to legally deflect any attempt to forcefully subject him to a Dutch legal proceeding fundamentally powerful evidence that there was something in Parker's past that could potentially cause him great legal retribution. The newly minted Tom Parker spent the next two years in Hawaii with Battery A of the 64th Coast Artillery Regiment at Fort Shafter in the vicinity of Honolulu. Apart from the relatively exotic location, his service was ordinary, and after two years he was transferred to Fort Barrancas in Pensacola, Florida, arriving in late October of 1931. In June of 1932, his three-year enlistment obligation concluded, and he re-enlisted, receiving a promotion in July to Private First Class, assigned to a coastal artillery battery at the fort. He sporadically communicated with his family by letter, even sending them photographs taken in Florida, his mother sending him clothing during this time period. Although this relative stability indicated that Parker was adjusting to life in a new country and a structured environment, clearly beneath the surface some pronounced issues were about to manifest themselves in conduct that was a throwback to Parker's formerly impulsive and volatile behavior. On September 27, 1932, the private first class left his base and simply didn't return, officially going AWOL that evening. After a one-week absence, he was demoted to private, and after a month without a reappearance, he was denoted as a deserter. Parker was gone for five months, and his sparse military documentation does not indicate whether he was apprehended or merely returned to Fort Barrancas on his own, on February 17, 1933. Although his disappearance lasted less than six months, a status that would have gotten the matter referred to the FBI, Parker's situation was an extremely serious matter, and he received a harsh sanction, 140 days of forfeited pay for the time missed, and 60 additional days in solitary confinement in the fort's stockade. During this punishment, Parker seems to have suffered some kind of psychotic break, emerging from this confinement with impaired speech, acting out with fits of paranoia-induced rage. He was then confined to the base psychiatric lockup for further treatment and observation, but following another two months without any improvement, Parker was sent officially to Walter Reed Medical Facility in Washington, D.C., there, he probably spent at least some time at St. Elizabeth's Hospital, essentially a psychiatric facility or as close to that type of facility that existed in 1930s America. Again, based on a lack of any administrative detail, what treatment, if any, that Parker received was not documented, but a psychiatric definition was compiled by a board comprised of three medical doctors who did offer a general diagnosis in conjunction with releasing Parker and discharging him permanently from the military. They concluded that his condition was not caused by his confinement, but by an existing disorder exemplified by impulsive behavior and a disregard for the rights and feelings of others. This was officially termed, quote, psychosis, psychogenic depression, acute on basis of constitutional psychopathic state, emotional instability, unquote. It was also determined that Parker's desertion was caused by this mental illness, a result with a medical origin. Therefore, he received an honorable discharge on August 19, 1933, leaving Walter Reed and the Army for good. Whatever communication Parker had with his family came to an abrupt halt 
after his military service, and by 1935, the Dutch government census officially removed him as a member of the Van Koyk family, noting that he was presumably in the U.S., because by that time his family had not heard from him in years and had no idea of his actual whereabouts. However, it is believed that Parker headed back to Florida after his discharge, most likely assuming that he would be able to talk his way into some sort of circus or carnival operation. And that is exactly what he did, working the concession stands for a carnival outfit called the Johnny Jones Exposition. He sold food, ran games of chance, and operated rides, working on a commission basis typical of most carnies who had to hustle to survive. In 1935, he also married an attractive divorcee, Marie Mott, possibly because having an American wife might make it more difficult to deport him, and probably not because of romantic reasons, as Parker had very little interest in women. Marie helped him in his various swindles, usually involving hot dogs and hamburgers that were actually 90% bread, three-card Monty variations, and fake drawings for valuable items like hams that nobody actually won. Parker also resorted to other non-carnival swindles, like selling Bibles to widows, claiming that their recently departed husband had ordered his specially embossed volume just weeks earlier. The distraught spouse overjoyed to fork out for such a special remembrance, not knowing that Parker had scanned death notices for these critical details in every new town he passed through. Life was still pretty rough for the couple, who literally crisscrossed the country living on a dollar a week and frequently sleeping surreptitiously in farm stables and on Indian reservations. It was in 1938, working on a carnival midway, that Parker met Gene Austin, a formerly popular crooner in the Bing Crosby mode, whose initial career success was now behind him. Parker convinced him to let the carny promote a carnival-style big tent tour, with Austin as the main attraction, and suddenly the singer was popular again, and Parker realized that managing entertainers was a lot easier than hustling suckers. Predictably, Parker cut corners by stiffing vendors and not paying income taxes, behavior that eventually got the tour sanctioned by a Virginia marshal who confiscated gate receipts and any property necessary to keep the tour up and running. Governmental legislation meant to monitor the behavior of resident aliens like Parker as World War II raged across Europe also required that he officially register under the Alien Registration Act of 1940. Technically, this was a good thing because in exchange for promising to fight in the event of war and with at least five years of residency in the U.S., Parker would have been able to become a U.S. citizen. But, again, for some reason known only to himself, Parker declined to comply. Instead, he registered with a local draft board in Tampa, omitting his previous service and merely creating a new identity of Thomas Andrew Parker. He put down his wife's parents' address, which may have actually been accurate, the broke couple moving in with relatives during an economically challenging time. Then in 1940, Parker caught a surprising break. He was able to convince the local Tampa branch of the Humane Society to hire him to handle operations at the society's shelter, but also to help with fundraising for the nonprofit organization. Parker's experience with animals, as well as his carnival promotion skills, seemingly perfectly suited for this position. Not only did the job pay a salary, it also came with a large apartment on the second floor of the Humane Society's building headquarters. This provided living space for not only Parker and his wife, but also for Marie's 15-year-old son from a previous marriage. And his car officially became the Shelter Ambulance, a designation that allowed access to gasoline and tires, even if such goods became rationed during warfare, which they did. Parker also wore a uniform during work hours, an additional step up for the former carnival huckster who previously scraped out a living selling cotton candy. Parker also tried to think of new avenues for fundraising, and it was not much of a stretch to hit upon the idea of putting on musical benefits, with proceeds benefiting a worthy cause, an initial generous deduction earmarked for Parker and the other sponsors. Parker knew very little about country music at the time, but he was shrewd enough 
to perceive it as very popular in northern Florida, and he began to spend some time in Nashville, attempting to cultivate as many connections as possible, although he was able to promote some Tampa-area shows for performers like Roy Acuff. It took Parker until 1945 to ingratiate himself with the then-unheralded country music singer Eddie Arnold. Arnold subsequently became one of the genre's most successful performers, with 19 number one hits during the next decade. Parker was also able to establish Arnold as a national television and radio performer and promoted the singer's extensive live appearance tours. But he also began a pattern of isolating the performer from his record company, in this case RCA, becoming an intermediary with control of every aspect of recording and record promotion. He also got Arnold to agree contractually to a 25% management fee, which was certainly aggressive for the time period. Parker already had a penchant for trying to create an image for himself with various nicknames, but the one that stuck occurred when he called on a former member of the tight-knit Carnival fraternity now working for the then-governor of Louisiana, Jimmy Davis. Davis actually started out as a country music singer, and after a lively conversation of Parker recounting some of his most humorous carny hustles, it was agreed that he would receive the official designation of colonel in the Louisiana State Militia. Never mind that such a military organization was non-existent. Parker insisted from then on that he be officially referred to with that title, a new identity that only added to his ever-increasing egotism and authoritarian treatment of underlings. Still, during this time period, Eddie Arnold became one of the most popular country music artists in the U.S. But Parker's calculating and devious personality eventually led to a management split. Arnold was under the impression that he was paying a 25% management fee to Parker for an exclusive arrangement in which Arnold was the colonel's sole client. But once Parker achieved high-profile success, he formed his own production company and quietly began attempting to sign other talent. Since this was legally somewhat of a gray area, Arnold tolerated this until it became obvious that Parker was working with other artists, most notably Canadian newcomer Hank Snow. Arnold finally fired the colonel in 1953, but not before Parker extracted a $50,000 fee the manager playing hardball, and eventually getting thousands of dollars merely to walk away. The colonel then moved on to producing shows with Hank Snow, getting Snow to line up other musicians, including Bill Haley and Andy Griffith, to perform on tour. It was Snow who convinced a promising newcomer, Elvis Presley, to get involved with these tours. Early in his career, Elvis relied on his mother Gladys for basic business advice, and she was turned off by the colonel's slippery, carny unsophistication. But Snow was a celebrity and a regular on the Grand Ole Opry, even convincing the show to book Elvis for what turned out to be his only appearance in late 1954. This opened the door for a management contract that Presley signed with what everybody assumed would be a co-management deal between Hank Snow Enterprises and the colonel's company, Jamboree Productions. But first, Parker had to get Presley out of his contract with Sam Phillips and Sun Records, which required what was then the unthinkable sum of $40,000, eventually all paid by RCA. Then, in what was an unprecedented entertainment industry blitz, 1956 became the year that Elvis Presley exploded onto the music and entertainment scene. Parker again exploited as many revenue streams as possible, making Elvis into the first American music star that tapped the market for all sorts of trinkets, products, and buttons, slapped with the Presley name and likeness, this type of merchandising becoming productive for the first time. Television also became part of the Presley promotion machine, Elvis appearing on the Milton Berle and Steve Allen shows, and despite Ed Sullivan calling Presley unfit for family viewing, the variety show host eventually acquiesced to the phenomenon. On September 9, 1956, Presley appeared on the Ed Sullivan show for the first time, an appearance that drew an audience estimated at 60 million viewers and an 82.6 share. His first number one hit, Heartbreak Hotel, was followed up by the combined A and B sides of 
Don't Be Cruel and Hound Dog, songs that were number one on the pop chart for 12 consecutive weeks, a previously unheard of popularity. By then, Parker had a contract awarding him exclusive management rights to Presley, signed not only by Presley and a previous agreement necessitated by Presley's minor legal status, signed by his parents Vernon and Gladys Presley as well. Hank Snow found that out after asking Parker about the status of their contract with the singer. He was brusquely told, you don't have any contract with Elvis Presley. Snow mistakenly believed that the Sun Records contract transferring Presley to RCA also meant that both Snow and Parker's co-production companies had made that agreement. He was wrong. By then, Presley was world famous, and he and his family thought Parker was a genius, so Snow had zero leverage. In truth, Parker did help Presley break out nationally and internationally, but the question has always been asked whether that ascension was inevitable, considering Presley's appeal and talent. By the end of 1956, Presley's first film, Love Me Tender, was released to a successful box office, and the title song quickly reached number one. His hip gyrations and pelvic motion, judged too suggestive for certain television angles, also prompted bans on public performances in certain cities, headlines which only delighted Parker a big believer in the no-news-is-bad-news school of thought. The hysteria and controversy around Presley quickly prompted his appearance fee to skyrocket, Ed Sullivan paying $25,000 a night, Lewis and Martin, by comparison, the second most expensive act at $10,000. Parker also deliberately kept the press away from Presley so that the only way the public could interact with the star was at a live performance or in a movie theater. Parker also made sure that Presley got booked into venues that sold out quickly, generating public excitement and an increasing ticket appetite on an ongoing basis. Parker had always had designs on becoming powerful in Hollywood, and Elvis Presley gave him that opportunity. His main challenge was that by California law, a talent manager could not make deals with a movie studio, considered a conflict of interest. Therefore, Parker engaged William Morris to act on behalf of Presley. But he did this in such a way that he had complete control over the negotiations, and he completely isolated Elvis from any access from any of the William Morris hierarchy, believing that they would attempt to steal his client. He went so far as preventing any William Morris personnel from even accessing Presley's private phone number, much less meeting with the star privately. And as much as he alienated just about everyone at Paramount and William Morris, Parker's paranoia about Hollywood was underlined when he found out that William Morris negotiated a terrible deal in which Presley was so underpaid for Love Me Tender that a SAG waiver had to be executed. And the seven-picture deal that was signed with really only a guarantee for one picture. Morris considered their relationship with the studios way more important the nurturing the career of an industry newcomer, a lesson Parker never forgot or forgave. The hierarchy at William Morris was also baffled and ultimately suspicious of two obvious business perspectives that Parker maintained seemingly to the detriment of his own client. When they suggested various tax write-offs and breaks that were standard practice in the industry, Parker refused to even consider them, proclaiming that he just let the IRS figure out what he and Elvis owed and paid it. He stated that he loved paying taxes and that he and Elvis were upright patriotic Americans who believed that the more taxes you paid, the better, because it meant you were making more money. This certainly didn't ring true with observers who watched the colonel haggle over every nickel, getting the studio to provide or pay for his office space, secretarial staff, chauffeured limousines, meals, and any other expense he could get away with. What he couldn't chisel, he charged to Elvis. They figured that there had to be a reason for this less-than-aggressive attitude towards income tax. There was. Parker was terrified that an IRS audit would dredge up all sorts of potential closet skeletons, ranging from actual citizenship to under-the-table cash he had certainly pocketed going back to his carnival days. When the colonel also balked at various live performances in the U.K., Australia, and South America, 
offers that were remarkable for the time period, it only raised more skepticism about Parker's representation. Whenever he was asked by anyone about these practices, he always maintained that he didn't want Elvis to wind up like Joe Lewis, owing millions to the government and foreign countries didn't have the security necessary to protect his client. Elvis himself either was never aware of these machinations or not particularly interested, accepting a weekly check without even an itemization of the deductions Parker peeled off of the top. Presley took out some cash for spending money, sent the rest home to his father, Vernon. On that home front, things were not particularly stable either. From the beginning, Gladys and Vernon Presley's relationship could only be termed as unusual. Gladys was 21, Vernon 17 when they married in 1933. Elvis was born on January 8, 1935, along with his stillborn identical twin, Jesse Garin Presley. The death of her own parents, the shock of the stillborn birth, and her inability to conceive additional children most likely had a profound effect on Gladys, and she developed a practically pathological attitude towards her son, overly protective and barely letting him out of her sight. Although ultimately an American icon of male sensuality, Presley was teased by other schoolchildren as a sissy and routinely called a mama's boy. He also became extremely close to his mother, most likely the result of Vernon Presley being convicted of check forgery when Elvis was a child, a development that prompted the foreclosure of their home and a traumatic period of economic insecurity. Strangely, Elvis's fame only exacerbated what was a dysfunctional relationship between Vernon and Gladys. With Elvis on the road and her husband engaging in various romantic adventures as a result of his newfound notoriety, Gladys Presley, already a heavy drinker, began to consume alcohol on a daily basis and abuse sleeping pills. Quite domineering in her relationship with Vernon, it is believed as she deteriorated physically, her husband and Elvis's absence began to be much more physically abusive. Her son's fame was also troubling and overwhelming. Her fear that a hysterical crowd might eventually harm or even kill Elvis. Depressed because her neighbors disliked her habit of raising chickens and feeding them on the front lawn of Graceland, Gladys never really adjusted to her family's radical transformation, once telling a friend, I wish we had stayed poor. As 1958 began, his parents' domestic dysfunction was only one of several fundamental issues dogging the career of Elvis Presley. Now over 21 years of age, he was officially eligible for the draft, a status that typically Colonel Parker would look to both manipulate and control. For that reason, Elvis's manager proactively and surreptitiously contacted the military requesting that Presley be assigned to special services, duty that would allow him to perform in front of other soldiers in exchange for avoiding boot camp and more demanding and tedious military assignments, especially dull in peacetime. Then Parker leaked a story to various media contacts detailing Elvis's potentially cushy deal. While he personally maintained to Elvis that he was doing everything possible behind the scenes to keep him out of the service, in truth, Parker actually was hoping Elvis would have to fulfill a military obligation. Although Presley was still completely unsophisticated from a business perspective, he clashed creatively with Parker over film and music issues, of which he felt correctly that Parker had no real interest in or appreciation of other than the potential to earn money. Parker felt a stint in the Army would chase in Presley and actually make him more dependent on someone able to both manage his interests in his absence and the inevitable comeback, which based on a two-year hiatus overseas was anything but guaranteed. Parker also correctly surmised that an obedient Elvis Presley entering the military like any other ordinary citizen without any special treatment would greatly burnish his image with the general public and help dispel completely the label of rebellious and sexually dangerous hooligan. Parker also did not want Elvis performing for free, the colonel figuring that that would diminish the public's interest and might even lead to overexposure. So, on March 24, 1958, formally inducted by the Memphis Draft Board, Elvis kissed his mother goodbye, 
hugged his father and girlfriend Anita Wood and headed not to a cushy gig with special services, but to Fort Chafee, Arkansas. There his hair was cut to military length, the entire process diligently recorded by popular media orchestrated by Tom Parker. He was then assigned to Fort Hood, Texas, where he underwent basic training. In early June, he spent his two weeks leave in Nashville, recording material to be released while he was serving in the military. Presley already had received a two-month deferment before his enlistment arranged by Parker to enable him to complete filming of his fourth motion picture, King Creole, which would also be released after his induction. There would be plenty of Elvis product available for release and sale while the star cooled his heels on some military base. Elvis did acquiesce to a typical military regimen, but he also atypically rented off-base housing so that various members of his family could stay in the vicinity of Fort Hood. First, this was a three-bedroom trailer, but the press was a constant nuisance, so then the Presley entourage moved into a secluded house in Colleen, Texas. But by early August, a combination of anxiety and substance abuse sent Gladys Presley over the edge. So stricken with liver failure that she was visibly yellow with jaundice, family members finally convinced her to return to a hospital in Memphis Methodist Hospital. Only 46, it was generally felt that Gladys would be fine, but her condition only worsened to the point that Elvis Presley had to secure emergency leave, racing back to Memphis by August 13th, but still believing that his mother would make it. On August 14, 1958, Gladys Presley died of what was officially termed a heart attack, but certainly exacerbated by acute hepatitis and liver failure. Only four weeks later, Elvis was on his way overseas to Germany. With RCA able to release five singles while Elvis was away, Tom Parker's main focus was extracting more money out of the Hollywood studios intent on cashing in when Elvis got out of the service. He got producer Hal Wallace to pay $175,000 as well as a profit percentage for what became Presley's first post-military film, appropriately called G.I. Blues. He did have to sit idly by when individuals like Wallace and Freddie Beanstock, the executive employed by Hill and Range Music Publishing to select songs for Presley, met with Elvis in Germany to discuss upcoming film production post-military service. Knowing how touchy Parker was about individuals meeting privately with Elvis, Wallace always offered to have the colonel come to Germany with them. Parker's repeated deflection of such offers only added to the rumors about some potential skeleton in the colonel's closet. Parker's arrangement with Hill and Range was certainly unique, this preeminent country music publisher officially splitting publishing royalties with Elvis on a 50-50 basis, even though Presley's songs were written by others, including Lieber and Stoller and Burt Bacharach. But it became standard practice for Hill and Range to demand that writers forego royalties if they wanted Elvis to record their music, his immense popularity dictating such a concession especially because if they didn't, Freddie Beanstalk would not present it to Elvis. Of the 50% allotted to Elvis, most of that went to Tom Parker in a corporate structure that designated only 15% of these royalties to Elvis. Parker even took a standard management fee of 25% from Elvis's 15%, an unethical payment structure by today's recording industry standards, but typical in the 50s and 60s and 70s. For his film deals, Parker began to consider himself a kind of co-equal of Elvis Presley, frequently allotting himself a 50-50 split on many of the deals he negotiated. When Elvis Presley emerged from the military on March 5, 1960, he was besieged by the press and mobbed by fans every step of the way. Reporters were even invited by Parker to get on the train that eventually took Presley from New York back to Memphis and the resulting coverage was overwhelmingly positive, with Elvis now perceived as a fine young man who had served his country admirably. Within weeks, it was announced that Frank Sinatra would host Elvis on something called Frank Sinatra's Welcome Home Party for Elvis Presley, an appearance that paid Presley $125,000, an unheard of sum. On the program, he would perform Stuck on You, the first of four consecutive number one hits released following Elvis's military service. He was as big as ever, 
and his appearance with Sinatra, and his repeated statement that Sinatra and Dean Martin were his favorite male vocalists indicated a subtle career shift away from rock and roll to what would be perceived as a more mature and larger audience. Elvis's spectacular comeback, which both Presley and his father attributed to the Colonel, only amplified their belief that Tom Parker was a crafty, indispensable genius, and they completely bought into the concept of Elvis and the Colonel as an unbeatable, money-making machine. Unfortunately, they mistook career success for financial security, with little understanding of who actually was making money. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Colonel Tom Parker. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books The Colonel by Alana Nash, Careless Love, The Unmaking of Elvis Presley by Peter Goralnik, and Elvis Aaron Presley, Revelations from the Memphis Mafia by Alana Nash. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and also rate us on iTunes. If you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.